0: no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply hello and welcome to another edition of the fourth sonopoli podcast this is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie a fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti, Thank you so, so much for listening. I have two parts for you today. In part one, I will review our final friendly match of the summer, which was against Espanol on Saturday. I know this review is a little bit late, so I apologize for that. And in part two, I will give you my thoughts on the upcoming 2022-2023 Serie A campaign. So let's begin with the match against Espanol, which finished nil-nil. This will probably be a relatively short review because to be perfectly honest, not a whole lot happened in this match, but that could actually be a bit of a concern. Probably the biggest story from this friendly was the fact that it was not very friendly at all. That, combined with Espanol's general approach to the match, actually made this a good test for us. And while I appreciate that it was just a friendly and these results don't really matter, the result was a little bit concerning. Now, Victor Osman didn't score for the second consecutive match, and his only goal in the four matches at Castel di Sangro was from the spot, but he did start another fight. Finally, Alex Meret and Nikita Contini collectively kept a clean sheet, Contini actually made a couple of nice saves in what was likely his last match in a Napoli shirt this season. We'll cover all of that in this review, but first, let's get to the starting lineups. Luciano Spalletti lined up in a 4-3-3 again with Alex Meret in goal, Kim Minjay and Amir Rachmani started at center back. Mario Rui played at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo played at right-back. Stanislav Lobotka played as the regista with Eli Falmas to his left and Andre Frank Zambon to his right. Fabian Ruiz was supposed to be in the starting lineup. He was even shown in the pre-match graphics, but Carlo Alvino explained that he was a last-minute scratch. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the rumors of a possible sale of Fabian to PSG. Kevicha Kvaratskhelia started on the left wing, Chucky Lozano started on the right wing, and Victor Osiman played at striker. Espanyol lined up in a 4-3-3 with Benjamin Lacompte in goal, Omar El-Hilali and Fernando Calero lined up at centre-back, Leandro Cabrera played at left-back and Sergi Gomez played at right-back, Vinicius started in the centre of the midfield with Brian Olivan to his left and Sergi Darder to his right, Finally, Nicolas Melamed played on the left wing, Ruben Sanchez played on the right wing, and José Lu started at striker. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match and I want to begin with the scrum that ensued just before the end of the first half. That happened just before the break but I think the tensions were building a little bit before then. Like all of the Spanish clubs that we played against at Castel de Sangro, I thought Espanyol was a little too aggressive for a friendly match. Earlier in the match, we saw heavy fouls on Mario Rui and Lobotka. Just past the half-hour mark, Cabrera went hard into the back of Osimen. Osimen got his revenge about five minutes later with a tackle on Sergi Gomez, who didn't like that Victor got his arms into his face. Then Omar returned the favor in the 42nd minute, getting his arms into the face of Mario Rui. And then two minutes after that, the incident with Oseman happened. For those who didn't see the match, Napoli had a corner kick and Espanyol cleared the danger. Victor chased the ball down on the opposite side of the pitch and shielded the ball to win a throw-in. There were a few Espanol players warming up near the touchline and for some reason Victor shoved one of them. It was a little bit off-camera, so I don't know exactly what happened there. If I had to guess, the ball probably rolled towards that group of players and instead of stopping the ball, they just let it roll forward, which is nothing really to get too upset about. But that shove and then the exchange of insults after that did draw a big crowd. Vinicius, who was being a shit disturber all match, pulled Victor back and then put his hand on Di Lorenzo's throat and I must say, I was very happy to see that Di Lorenzo was the first player to Victor's defense, that's exactly what you want to see from your team captain. Lozano was there as well, say what you want about his first touch or about his productivity, Lozano has shown a few times now that he will not back down from a fight either. Mario Rui was late to the party, but as always, he was looking to get into the action as well. Now, eventually the crowd dissipated, but this raises the question again about Victor's temperament. For now, I am still okay with it. As I've said before, I'd rather have a player like Oseman who perhaps has too much passion than a player like Patania, who perhaps is not passionate enough. That said... I'm getting a little bit concerned that Victor isn't learning. We saw what happened at training with Spalletti. That didn't worry me a whole lot. The shove in this match was actually very similar to the one that got him sent off against Genoa last season. Even if there wasn't much in the shove and Guilione sold it in that game, it was the reaction that got him sent off in the first place. Last season, I was happy to dismiss that red card on the grounds that Victor is young and he will learn from his mistakes. I won't be so forgiving this season if it happens again, because if it did, it means that he did not learn from his mistakes. Now, that encounter increased the intensity of the match. When play eventually resumed, Vinicius went straight through Angisa, and I'm really surprised he did not react. Moments later, Calero caught Rachmani late, and shortly after that, both Lobotka and Lozano were tackled late in quick succession. That was enough to draw the attention of Aurelio De Laurentiis, who hopped off the Napoli bench to speak to the official's assistant. By the way, this was the first time De Laurentiis showed up to a match at Castel di Sangro. Perhaps he felt less ashamed because this match only cost 3 euros to watch online compared to the 10 euros that were charged for the previous three. Either way, I think De Laurentiis might be rethinking whether he wants to play against any Spanish clubs in preseason friendlies in the future. Ironically, the Espanyol bench took exception late in the match when Juan Jesus was late with a tackle on Hosulu. That drew the attention of Luciano Spalletti, who rightly pointed out that the fouls committed in the first half were 45 to 10 before telling the bench stay seduto, stay seated. So that was one way that Espanyol frustrated us. They also frustrated us with their low block. It genuinely felt like Espanyol were playing for a draw, which seems bizarre for a friendly match. They were sitting back and defending. They were running down the clock whenever they had an opportunity to. I don't know if Espanyol were practicing to play for draws in La Liga, but that's kind of what it felt like, and that could well be the case. Though they finished 14th in the league last season, they collected only 42 points. The third team to be relegated... Collected only 38 points, so they were only 4 points clear of relegation last season. As my friend Anna said after the match, it felt like one of those matches against a mid table club like Spezia or Ampoli where we are clearly the better side but just cannot seem to find the back of the goal. Once again, Victor didn't score, but I'm not worried in the least about that. If he wasn't getting any chances to score, I would be worried, but that was not the case. He still worked hard and he got his opportunities, but was just really unfortunate to not find the back of the goal in this one. He had one chance in the 10th minute where Lecomte was leaning the wrong way, but managed to get a foot on the ball to stop Victor's shot towards the near post. And then he made a crazy reaction save on Victor's header on the ensuing corner kick. I don't think he even knew what happened there, but I suppose he should get credit for putting his body in the right place. Though we didn't score, there were positive signs on both of those chances. Lozano made an excellent play to set up the first one. I'm very optimistic about the partnership between Lozano and Osimen this season. And on the second, Mario Rui played an excellent cross into the area. Hopefully, we do more of that this season rather than short corners. We know how good Victor is in the air, so no need to be fancy. Just play a traditional cross into the area and let him do his thing. Victor also had a couple of chances that were either blocked or just missed the target. Cavada came close as well just a few minutes before the break, but again, Lacombe made a bit of an awkward yet effective save. He kicked out the low shot that was heading towards the near post on that occasion. So we had our chances to score and just didn't take them, which I guess is still a bit of a concern because the very same thing could happen in the Campionato. Now, what I will say is in the friendlies, we're not playing our regular starters as we typically would. If you want to judge our play in a friendly, which is probably a bad idea in the first place, focus more on the first half than in the second. As we've seen in all of these friendlies, we played our B team in the second half, which we would never do in a real match. We couldn't even if we wanted to because you only have five substitutions. That said, Victor and Cavada both played until the 70th minute. So that's something to keep an eye on. If a front three of Cavara, Osimen, and Lozano are struggling to find the back of the goal for whatever reason, whether we're not creating enough chances or we are and we're not taking them, who do we have that can come on and make a difference? That's where I think the players we are linked to could be really important because guys like Raspadori and Simeone can come off the bench and make a difference. Now Raspadori would probably be a starter anyway, but Simeone would undoubtedly be an upgrade over Petania. Now, with all of those changes at the break, we were not as dominant in the second half as we were in the first half. In fact, Espanyol created the best chances in the second half, and Nikita Contini made some fantastic saves. In the 58th minute, he made a big save on Cabrera, I believe, and then Osiman cleared Vinicius's shot off the line. So, even though Osiman didn't score, he still contributed with that play because Had that ball gone in, we probably would have lost the match. And then, in the 74th minute, Contini made another excellent save, this time on Ruben Sanchez. Contini, by the way, is expected to join Sampdoria on loan any day now. That will be the 8th or 9th club that he joins on loan since being promoted from Napoli's Primavera squad. Remarkably, during all this time, he has not made a single appearance for Napoli's senior team. With Contini heading out, Salvatore Sirigu should be on his way in. He was at Villa Stuart on Tuesday to complete his medicals. So that will do for part one. In part two, I'll provide my thoughts on the upcoming campaign. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Welcome to part 2 of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you'd like to find more Napoli content in English, check out our website at forzanapolipress.com. If you go there, you can find all the latest news on the senior team, the Primavera, the Femminile, and some music suggestions that we make on the show. Alright, so the 2022-23 Serie A campaign is going to kick off this weekend, and I was asked by Max on Twitter... To provide my top 4 prediction for this season which is really really difficult to do but i will do my best with the help of lots of logic and information as you would expect from this show so let's start with the odds according to the sports book that i use inter are the favorites to win the league at plus 175 juventus are not far behind at plus 190. milan are third at plus 350 and roma are fourth at plus 900 Napoli are next at plus 1,400, followed by Atalanta at plus 2,500, Lazio at plus 5,000, and Fiorentina at plus 8,000. Now, I should note that these odds are in real time, meaning they do not account for any transfers that might be coming. In Napoli's case, it may be Raspadori, Simeone, a goalkeeper, or all of the above. It seems like most pundits agree with these odds, with Roma finishing fourth and Napoli in fifth, and most people are basing that on the fact that Roma have been very active in bringing players in, while Napoli have obviously lost some key players. So let me start with Napoli. As you know, we lost Ospina, Koulibaly, Insignia, and Mertens. Personally, I don't think those losses are as big as most Napoli fans do, and I certainly don't think they're as big of losses as fans of other clubs seem to think. I think the two biggest losses are Ospina and Koulibaly. We all know that Napoli is searching for a goalkeeper to replace Alex Meret. We've been linked to Kepa from Chelsea. We obviously have a relationship with Chelsea having just sold Koulibaly to them and the rumors were that Chelsea were willing to pay around 75% of Kepa's salary on a one-year dry loan. We've also been linked to Killer Navas at PSG who may or may not be a part of the Fabian Ruiz deal. The rumor on Navas is that PSG would pay 50% of his salary and that Napoli are seeking a two-year loan. The two-year loan is very important because it would allow us to take advantage of the Decreto Crescita or the growth decree. For those of you who don't know what the growth decree is, it's a law in Italy that's intended to bring talent into the country. So anyone who has lived outside of the country for a minimum of two years and comes to work in the country for at least two years gets a break on their income tax in the case of footballers the tax break is 50 percent and because football clubs pay the tax that would represent a saving for napoli so let's say navis makes 10 million euros a year gross PSG pays 50% of that so Napoli are responsible for the other 5 million about half of which is tax but via the growth decree we save 50% of the tax or 1.25 million which means we would be paying 3.75 million gross for Navas which would be incredible for a keeper who has won multiple Champions League titles. Now, the keeper situation is still a little bit up in the air. It seemed like we were going to loan Meret to Spezia, and perhaps that deal was just on hold until we could sign Kepa or Navas. On Wednesday, Spezia announced that they acquired Bartolomei Drangovski from Fiorentina, which means they won't also loan Meret. That means we either have to find another home for Meret, or he may be our number one keeper. I still have hope for Meret, but that could be the difference between Napoli finishing in the top four or not. At the same time, though, the reports are that Napoli are very, very close to signing Kaylor Navas, so we'll have to figure out what to do with Meret. Maybe the club has another option. We know he's been linked to Leicester City as well. Moving on, Koulibaly is simply irreplaceable. Chelsea fans and EPL fans are quickly realizing what Napoli and Serie A fans knew all along, which is that Koulibaly is a world-class defender, so he will obviously be a huge loss. Now... That being said, Kim Min Jae was highly rated and did have interest from a lot of clubs, most notably Ren in Ligue 1, which people might turn their noses to, but also from Tottenham in the Premier League. Again, I don't think anyone can replace Koulibaly, but it seems like Kim Min Jae is a quality player. So our starting centre-back pairing has weakened, but with the addition of Leo Ostagard, I think we've actually gotten deeper at centre-back. Ostegaard is definitely better than Tuanzebe. I actually think he'll displace Juan Jesus as the third center back before the end of the season. Now, in my opinion, the situations with Insigne and Mertens are slightly different than with Ospina and Koulibaly. People might disagree with me on this, but personally, I don't think Insigne and Mertens are huge losses on the pitch. Both are on the wrong side of 30. Insigne scored only 1 or 2 goals from open play last season, the rest of his goals were from the penalty spot, now I agree he is also a playmaker and the stats may not pick that up, but you cannot tell me that Insigne was the same player last season that he was the season before. His replacement, Kevica Kvarskhelia, is another player that people are writing off because they've never heard of him or because he hasn't played in a top 5 league. And I get it, we have to wait and see how he performs against stronger competition, but he's probably been our best player in the preseason, so all indications are that he will be a suitable replacement for Insigne if not an upgrade. Mertens is 35 years old, and as much as we love him and wanted him to play... Spalletti made it clear that Mertens was not a huge part of his project. Mertens made 30 appearances last season, but he only played 1,400 minutes. Most of the minutes he did play were while Osimhen was hurt. So if Osimhen stays healthy, that would mean even fewer minutes for Mertens. Now, a lot of people have said with Mertens and Insigne that perhaps we don't lose much on the pitch, but we lose a lot off of it. Insignia was the captain, so was Koulibaly for that matter, Mertens was the most loved person in the entire city let alone in the club, and I love those guys as much as any Napoli fan does. But looking at it objectively, what has that actually done for us? These were the same leaders in the locker room when year after year we were talking about having a weak mentality. These were the same guys in the locker room when we had a mutiny and two out of the three, Insignia and Mertens, along with Alain, led the players to walk out on the owner and the coach. So it may come off as a bit of a hot take because of how much these guys meant to us, but I'm not so sure we're actually losing a whole lot off the pitch. Now with Merytons, we haven't signed a replacement yet. We seem to have Gerard Feo blocked, but we did not pull the trigger. That's likely because the opportunity to sign Giacomo Raspadori arose. That deal has been dragging on seemingly forever, but Raspadori wants Napoli, so I think a deal will get done. Likewise, Giovanni Simeone seems to want Napoli, and we're just waiting for Pitana to go to Monza. If those two deals don't happen, then our attack has definitely gotten worse. But if those two deals do happen, then Napoli's attack has improved. Finally, we have Fabian Ruiz, who is likely to join PSG. I was always under the impression that he wanted to return to Spain. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he wants to win a Champions League or at least compete to win a Champions League and that this is not just about money, but even if it is about money, good for him, I don't hold that against him, clubs chase money all the time, so why shouldn't players? We've been linked to a whole host of possible replacements for Fabian, some of them would be very good like Dominic Sobozlai or Tanguy Ndombele. Some are perhaps a little bit weaker but whom I still like like Antonin Barak or Davide Fratesi and then there are yet others who I'm a little less excited about like Nahitan Nandez or Giovanni Lo Celso. Again, I like Fabian but I don't think he would be a particularly big loss especially if we play a 4-2-3-1. So that's the situation at Napoli. Perhaps I'm overly optimistic as a Napoli fan but I also don't think it's anywhere near as catastrophic as some people, especially rival fans, are making it seem. Let's move on to Roma next. Roma finished 6th in the league last season, but they were only 2 points behind Juventus in 4th. They finished 16 points back of Napoli, so a lot of people have been trying to work out whether Napoli's departures will result in an 8-point decline and whether Roma's acquisitions will result in an 8-point increase. So let's talk about the players Roma have brought in. The big signing of course was Paolo Dybala who left Juventus. The other big signing was Gini Wijnaldum. And then they added Miles Villar from Benfica, Nemanja Matic from Manchester United, and Zeki Selic from Lille. Finally, it seems like it's only a matter of time before Roma announced the signing of Andrea Belotti. As far as key departures go, Henrik Mkhitaryan went to Inter, Ainsley Maitland-Niles returned to Arsenal... Sergio Oliveira went to Galatasaray, and Carlos Perez went to Celta Vigo. Now, on paper, that is an excellent summer Mercato, probably the best of any Serie A club. But for me, I think there is just as much uncertainty with Roma's Mercato as there is with Napoli's. Zvilar is a backup goalkeeper, so he doesn't change much. Matic is a 34-year-old midfielder, so I think at best, he'll share midfield responsibilities with the likes of Lorenzo Pellegrini and Brian Cristante. I actually think Wijnaldum might be the best signing out of all of them. I presume he'll replace Oliveira in the midfield. Now, Wijnaldum probably didn't play as much as he would have liked to at PSG last season, but he was good for Newcastle and Liverpool in the English Premier League. Ex-EPL players have had a pretty good track record in Serie A over the past couple of seasons. Roma know that all too well with the additions of Chris Malling and Tammy Abraham. As far as Selik goes, I don't know what role he will play, but he's still young and he comes from Ligue 1, which is a talent machine. I think he will compete with Rick Karsdorp for the starting position on the right side of the four-man midfield, just like I think Zalewski will compete for the starting role with Spinazzola on the left. And then you have Bellotti and Dybala up top. If they stay fit, there's no question that Roma's attack has improved. But for me, that is a big if. Dybala has missed a lot of games in the past few seasons with Juve, and the majority of those injuries were of the muscular variety. Bellotti's still only 28 years old, which is incredible. It feels like he's been around forever but he too missed about half of the season last year. He missed five matches with a foot tendon injury, and then he missed another nine matches with a thigh injury. So he too is a bit of an injury risk, but I think if he is used primarily as a substitute and maybe as a starter in the Europa League, then he can be very useful. Now that's all assuming that Roma don't sign Zaniolo, It seemed like they were trying to sell Zaniolo earlier in the summer, but Juve did not want to pay the 50 million euro transfer fee for him. Now it looks like Zaniolo will stay another season. So taken all together, I don't think Napoli can maintain that 16 point gap, but I also don't think that Roma are going to blow past us in the table as everyone outside of the Napoli community seems to think. The biggest difference between these two clubs at the moment is probably the attitude of the fans towards their respective clubs. Tensions are at an all-time high in Napoli after all of our favorite players have been pushed out. Fans are not happy about ticket prices, we've only sold about 5,000 season tickets with only a few days left before the start of the season. Meanwhile, there is a very positive energy in Rome. Fans are optimistic, they're excited about the changes they're seeing and the investments the Freakins are making. They packed 65,000 people into the Olimpico for friendly matches and they've sold around 36,000 season tickets, which is only behind the two clubs from Milano. So the fans of the two clubs seem to be heading in opposite directions. However, I also think, contrary to public opinion, that both Roma and Napoli could finish in the top 4 which brings me to Juventus. Of all those odds that I listed Juventus has to be the worst value. First of all Juve have seen as many important players leave the club as we have yet everyone has Juve in the top 4 and Napoli out of it. Giorgio Chiellini was to Juve what Koulibaly was to Napoli, at least as far as leadership goes. Chiellini's obviously much older, so he did not have as much to offer on the pitch as Koulibaly did. But Juve also sold Matthijs De who played a lot last season, but never really lived up to the expectations. Juve purchased Bremer from Torino to fill the void, Brammer is the reigning Serie A defender of the year. I think he will be a quality player for Juve. I don't really care that he had a howler in a friendly against Atletico Madrid. Leo Bonucci is Juve's other center back. He's 35 years old, so we don't know how well his body is going to hold up. He missed 10 games last season due to injury. Now, Juve also signed Federico Gatti, who seems like a very good player, but if we're going to question a player like Kim Min Jae, why shouldn't we question a player like Gatti? Neither have played in Serie A, but Kim is a regular on the South Korean national team. Gatti has had a rapid rise to Serie A. Three seasons ago, he was playing in Serie D. Two seasons ago, he was playing in Serie Chi. And last season, he played in Serie B. Now, he was called to the national team and played well in that match. But we can't call him a regular just yet. He could turn out to be an excellent player. But I'd suggest there's as much uncertainty about Gatti as there is about Kim. Moving on to the midfield, Juve brought Pogba back from Manchester United but he now has a meniscus injury, he's elected to not have surgery so that he can play in the World Cup, that means he will miss more time in the short term doing rehab, there's also the risk that that injury could get worse and he requires surgery regardless, so there's a lot of uncertainty around Pogba. Then you have McKennie who's expected to miss a few weeks with a shoulder injury and Adrian Rabiot who's been heavily linked to Manchester United. I have mixed feelings on that. On one hand, you could say that Juve's midfield has weakened. On the other hand, McKennie and Rabiot haven't exactly been standout performers during their time at Juventus. Meanwhile, Juve have two excellent young midfielders in Nicolo Rovella and Nicolo Fagioli. If Pogba, McKennie, and Rabiot were all fine, Allegri would not give those youngsters the time of day, but with Pogba and McKennie hurt and Rabiot potentially on his way out, Allegri might be forced to play Rovella and Fagioli, which is actually bad for everyone else because, like I said, they're two very good players. Now, Juve are also very close to signing Filip Kostic from Eintracht Frankfurt. That deal might be completed by the time you hear this podcast. He would replace Rabiot on the left side of the midfield, so the addition of Kostic would improve Juve's midfield, but it's not a dramatic improvement in my opinion. What I mean by that is, Juve's biggest weakness over the past few seasons has been the midfield, and while Kostic certainly improves it, the midfield might still be Juve's biggest weakness. Moving on to the front three, Juve brought in Angel Di Maria, but lost Federico Bernardeschi. They also lost Bala, who didn't play a whole lot in recent seasons due to injury, and Alvaro Morata, who returned to Atletico Madrid. Di Maria is an excellent signing, in my opinion. He's looked like one of Juve's best players in preseason. I know some people are saying he's just coming in to prepare for the World Cup. I'm not buying that. I mean, yes, he wants to play regularly ahead of the World Cup, but I'm not expecting his play to fall off a cliff after the World Cup. Federico Chiesa is still recovering from the ACL injury that kept him out for the majority of last season, so he is almost like a new signing. I believe his return is expected in October. A front three of Chiesa on the left, Vlahovic in the middle, and Di Maria on the right could be pretty devastating, but again, we'll have to wait and see how Chiesa looks after so much time off. I don't wish injuries on any player, but it's not uncommon for players who do one knee to return and do the other. We saw that with Nicolo Zaniolo at Roma. Speaking of which, as I mentioned earlier, Zaniolo was heavily linked to Juve, but that deal seems to have collapsed. With Morata going back to Atleti, Juve don't have a whole lot of depth in the attack. I suppose Moise Keane would be the backup to Vlahovic. Finally, Wojtek Szczesny has an adductor tear so that will keep him out for the first few weeks of the season, but Mattia Perin is a more than capable backup. So taken all together, I'd say Juve's defense is about as good as they were last season, maybe slightly improved. The midfield would be marginally improved by the signing of Kostic over Rabiot, and with Di Maria and Keza, the starting front three is much better, but the depth has worsened. In other words... Juve has only marginally improved in all phases on the pitch, so I don't see how they go from being fourth in the league, 21 points back of the Scudetto winners Milan, to suddenly being the second favorites. For me, the clear top two teams in the league are Inter and Milan. I do not understand how everyone continues to overlook Milan even after they just won the Scudetto. I think they've undergone the least amount of change out of the top teams, but they've also brought in some important reinforcements. Alessio Romagnoli is off to Lazio, but his role at Milan diminished over the past few seasons. They still have 3 quality centre-backs in Fikayo Tomori, Pierre Kalulu, and Simon Kier. I suspect Pioli will stick with Tomori and Kalulu, who were so key to Milan's success during the home stretch of last season. Kayer's a little bit older and he'll need some time to get back into the rhythm of the game after missing so much of last season due to injury. In the midfield, Franck Kessier signed with Barcelona and now there are reports that he could leave for free because Barcelona may not be able to register a bunch of players. You know, everyone criticized Milan for losing Donnarumma and Kessier on a free in back-to-back seasons, But Milan are looking pretty smart now. Donnarumma barely played last season and when he did, he made some important mistakes including in the Champions League. As I said, Kessie could leave Barcelona before even playing a single game for them. And in case you didn't know, Milan won the Scudetto last season. Meanwhile, Yassin Adli returned from his loan at Bordeaux and he has looked very impressive in the preseason as well. Even though Kessie was a defensive midfielder, Pioli did occasionally use him as an attacking midfielder, so Adli, I think, will replace Kessie. Milan also added Charlet de Quetelaire, so they have an abundance of talent in the midfield. Sandro Tonali picked up a knock in Milan's preseason friendly against Vicenza, but it sounds like it's not that serious. He'll only miss a game or two. I imagine Ismail Benacer will fill in the void in the meantime. Tommaso Pobega is also available after returning from his loan spell at Spezia last season. The attack is probably the biggest question mark for Milan. They still have Olivier Giroud who was excellent last season, but he is now 35 years old. Zlatan Ibrahimović extended his contract for a season but I view him more as a coach than as a player. Milan also brought in Divac Origi from Liverpool. He was the sixth option striker there, but as I said earlier, EPL players, especially strikers, have fared well in Serie A over the past few seasons. Milan's weakest position is probably the right wing. Samu Castillejo is off to Valencia, so the options on the right wing are currently Alexis Salamakers and an aging Junior Macias. But other than the right wing, this is still a very, very strong Milan squad. They still have the best goalkeeper in the league in Mike Magnon, the best left back in the league in Teo Hernandez, and the best winger in the league in Rafael Leao. Finally, we have Inter, who, despite being a financial mess, have managed to maintain a very strong squad as well. Of course, the major change at the club is the return of Romelu Lukaku, whether you consider that a Marota coup or just plain luck, Lukaku is a massive upgrade over Edin Dzeko. Lautaro Martinez has now been reunited with his strike partner during their Scudetto winning championship two seasons ago. Mind you, that season was under Antonio Conte. We'll have to see how that partnership performs under Simone Inzaghi. The other big change at Inter is the loss of Ivan Perisic, who followed Antonio Conte to Tottenham. Inter already had a replacement in the squad, having signed Robin Gozins last season, but that is a clear downgrade. Perisic was arguably Inter's best player last season. Meanwhile, Gozins has struggled with injuries since his last season at Atalanta. Finally, Inter signed Andre Onana in goal. It seems like Samir Handanovic might be the number one at the start of the season, but I think it's only a matter of time before Onana takes over. The rest of the arrivals and departures from Inter are mostly support players, Matthias Vecino has gone to Lazio and Arturo Vidal has moved to Flamengo, Christian Aslani has been signed from Empoli and Henrik Mkhitaryan from Roma. Finally Alexis Sanchez is off to Marseille and Andrea Pinamonti appears to be on his way to Sassuolo. Pinamonti was loaned out last season and Sanchez only featured occasionally, so those moves probably won't change much. So the core of this team remains very much intact. For a long time, Inter were rumored to sell Milan Skriniar and replace him with Bremer. They took too long, lost Bremer to Juve, and so Skriniar stayed, as have Alessandro Bastoni and Stefan de Vrij, so that back three has not changed. In the midfield, they still have the likes of Marcelo Brozovic and Nicola Barella. Federico Di Marco provides an alternative to Gozins on the left, and Denzel Dumfries remains on the right, at least for now. We'll see if Inter ends up selling anyone. So despite all their challenges off the pitch, Inter are very strong once again on it. So taking all of that into consideration, for me, there are three tiers of clubs. Inter and Milan are in the top tier. Napoli, Juve and Roma are in the second tier. And then Lazio and Fiorentina are in the next tier. I haven't talked about them today, but I think both Lazio and Fiorentina have improved as well, and I think along with Atalanta, those teams can still take points away from the clubs above them. But I won't cop out and just give you tears, so here is my top 4 prediction. I have Milan repeating as the champions, Inter in 2nd, Roma in 3rd, and Napoli in 4th, which means Juve miss out on the top 5. Now listeners who are not Napoli fans will probably say I'm biased, But that is my genuine, honest, objective opinion on the top four. If I'm being truly honest, I wanted to put Napoli above Roma, but that really would seem biased. As I've said, a lot can change depending on how the Mercato goes for all these clubs. So that is where I'll leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at pod. I'll have another episode out very soon, almost immediately after this one is released, to preview our opening match of the season against Hellas Verona. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Sports Social Podcast Network.